Good morning. <laughs> Will you join me once again for the word of prayer? Holy Spirit, we invite you to fall upon us now and breathe freshly into our hearts as you have breathed into this text. And as we hear your word um, proclaimed, may we be changed by it. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I know you can't see this, but I keep this picture on my desk. It's a picture of my six oldest grandkids at a campground, all riding bikes around the campground, and they're all wearing bicycle helmets around the campground. Now, if you're my age or older, they didn't even have helmets when we were kids. <laughs> and I don't actually um, like wearing a helmet when I ride my bike now. I feel like it's nobody's business if I wear a helmet. I'm not saying it's not a good idea. I think it's a great idea. I just don't like being told I should wear a helmet. So when I ride by myself, I don't wear a helmet. But when I ride with the grandkids, I do wear a helmet. All of my kids require all of their kids to wear helmets. They all agree this is a basic safety measure. They all agree that the risks outweigh the inconvenience. But my kids don't all agree equally about exposing their kids to hazards. They have different risk assessment profiles. Um, <laughs> but whatever their feelings might be, you know, when the family gets together, when we are in community, there has to be one standard rule that everybody observes. They, every child has to agree on these basic child safety protocols. And there is no way to make a compromise. You can't have the kids wear helmets on even days, but not odd days. You know, everybody has to agree we're all going to require our kids to wear helmets, or we're not going to require our kids to wear helmets. There's no place for compromise. There's no middle ground. So if, if one parent is calling bicycle helmets a basic safety measure, and another parent is calling them the chief indicator of paranoid parenting that enfeebles children's souls. There's, there's no common ground there. They're not going to settle the issue by some kind of, of a compromise. They have to resolve that if, they're gonna, if the parents are going to live in community, they have to resolve and agree that there's going to be one standard that everyone adheres to. You, know, you can't have one kid who's required to wear a helmet and the other kids aren't. You can't require one kid to wear a life jacket and the other kids aren't. Because if the, if the child who's, who's restricted, he's, he's forced to wear a bicycle helmet, if he sees the liberated child who's not required to wear a helmet riding without, he's going to naturally ask, how come I have to wear a helmet? You know, why can't I be free to choose for my own? If, if one kid can jump into the lake without a life jacket, the other kids are going to say, well, why, why do I have to wear a life jacket? You know, how come I can't have the same sense of liberty? Why do I have to, to, uh, why do I have to conform to the rules? And, you know, the parents have, may have different standards. You know, they might say that, one parent might say that they want their kids to climb on rocks and experience skinning their knees, um, but you can't, you can't have one kid allowed to climb on the rocks if all the kids aren't allowed to climb on the rocks. You know, and the same thing you see it at the playground. You take your kids or grandkids to the playground, and one parent is very careful about safety measures, and the other one is not. And so consequently, you have some kids that are not allowed to play on the climbing things, and you have other kids that are on the top of the climbing things and climbing on top of the swing sets because 
The parents feel that this is, promotes independence and also because falling engenders informed risk decisions in the future, you know, so. I, now I say all that because churches also have debates about things that we differ on. And some of these issues of debates are not resolvable and you can't come to a happy medium. You can't agree in the middle, it's such, such as uh, a church's worship style. You know, a church basically decides what their worship style is going to be. It's going to be this kind and not that kind. I went to a church a few weeks ago. They had no instruments, and they only had one guy up front who was leading the singing, and they only sang from the psalms that were in the Bible, and they only sang from old tunes. And so they had literally split hymnals. The hymnals were, were cut in half, and they only sang psalms. And I asked them, you know, why do you not have instruments? And they felt like that they're just going to do only what's prescribed in the Bible. If it doesn't say so in the Bible, they're not going to do anything else. Of course, that wouldn't fly in a church like this, where we, where we only sang psalms and we only had one guy leading. We, there's no middle ground. And so there's, there are debates in the church, and there always will be debates in the church that can't be settled. And we can't find a compromise, we can't find a middle ground. Now where we were talking about last week, I think it was last week, um, in Romans 14, uh, I can't remember the verses we were at, the, the point of last week is that it, Paul is teaching us how we should conduct ourselves when we disagree sharply. And remember that the church in Rome was comprised of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, all of whom were new believers, because Christianity hadn't been, along, been around very long. Many of the people in that church were Jews. A Jew would never eat any meat that was unclean, not kosher, or if they didn't know where it came from. Gentiles ate rather indiscriminately. Hey, meat's meat. You know, let's, if it's out and it's barbecued, let's, let's eat it. The, the Jews had a rather strict calendar. They worshiped on the Sabbath, which was Saturday, and they also worshiped on the Lord's Day, which was Sunday. The Gentiles had no such need to observe a Sabbath on Saturday and a Lord's Day on Sunday. The Jews observed special religious holidays, feasts, fasts, and the Gentiles didn't. And the Jewish Christians wanted to maintain their Jewishness while still being Christian. So this is a matter actually that had been resolved already because Jesus told us that, uh, that the ceremonial uh, food restrictions had been lifted. There was a Jewish council, a church, a church council that met in Jerusalem, which was supported by the apostles, and they met to describe the, the very issue of do Gentiles need to be practicing Jews in order to be Christians? And the issue then was about circumcision, and the council met and said, no, Gentiles don't need to be circumcised, and they don't need to observe Jewish special days. Um, that became a real clear distinction that the Gentiles were, theologically speaking, free from the Jewish customs because they weren't Jews. They had become Christians as they were. But the council decided that Gentiles ought to abstain from uh, food that had been uh, polluted by idols or meat that had been um, strangled 
because it was, a, it was a consideration, it was an act of charity, it was an act of love to not offend the Jewish brothers. So here's the deal, God saves by grace and not by law, and you are free Gentiles to eat whatever you want to, but for the sake of not offending other Christians, how about you just observe these things? You don't eat um, food polluted by idols and meat of strangled animals. So uh, Romans 14, and Romans 15 all are revisiting this same topic from a slightly different angle. And the point is, for us to live in community, we need to know how to disagree with one another properly. We need to realize we're not going to agree on everything, and we're, going, we can, we're, we're free to debate these things. We're free to argue them. Hopefully you can win other people to your, to your position. You can persuade them that you're right, or you can agree that you're going to live in Christian harmony with your disagreements. And the church has always had debates. Debate is healthy. We don't all have to be the same. We don't have to be homogenous. And so throughout Romans 14 and 15, Paul's exhorting Christians to, to put other believers first so that we can live in community, to not divide over these minor disputes. He says the strong Christians, they're, they're strong because they believe that they're liberated and they are free to not, to not recognize these special days and Sabbath. They're free to eat whatever meat they want to. They're free to recognize that all food is clean. It's been declared so in, in its correct context. The weak are those who are needlessly bound by excessive scruples. In either case, both the weak and the strong need to get along by putting others first. And Paul begins to tell the Roman Christians in uh, chapter 14, verses 1 to 12, that we need to welcome one another, not despise one another. And we are to study the matter carefully and discern for ourselves, after careful study, what our position is. We should think through it clearly. Uh, Romans 14, one, I don't know where he says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So instead of judging others, we need to come to the conclusion what we believe to be true and be fully persuaded by that, but then learn to live with one another because that's what Jesus did. If you, we won't get here this week, but next week, look ahead to Romans chapter 15, verses 1. We who are the strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So here we have this supreme example of not demanding our own rights, of surrendering our own position for the sake of other people, of brothers in Christ. And so he tells us how we should, we should uh, um, carry on this debate. We should not despise one another. We should, we should know what our position is and accept those who have a different position. And he tells them about the, the, the notice that, you know, when, when Paul brings up two issues here, the debate about food and the debate about certain days, he doesn't resolve the issue about food until way later in the chapter, doesn't even mention it here, and he never gets back to the subject of which is right about 
observing special days and observing Sabbath because the issue itself is not important. There's a principle behind it. There's a principle about getting along with, with one another. So he is going to later say it's okay for you to eat meat, but he doesn't say so right up front because he's trying to drive home this principle. Even though there is a correct answer, Paul does not give them a correct answer. He wants the church to debate these issues, to uh, settle on the fact that they can disagree and still be in community with one another. So the, the one Christian has a right to eat meat, has a right to not celebrate special days, but he must not demand his rights or insist on his rights or urge the others to do what he does because that harms the community. So one person may be a, a com, an omnivore or a carnivore and eat meat. Another one might decide he's not free to eat meat we're not free to wear a bicycle helmet or free to wear a bicycle helmet, but despite these convictions for the good of the community, for the sake of maintaining the unity that the Holy Spirit has already provided, we surrender our personal preferences. Please take your Bible and turn with me where we left off last week, Romans chapter 14, verse 13. Now you remember last week Paul gives us the admonition that we need to receive one another without judging each other, without condemning each other. He gives us three reasons. Because God has received them and God has received you. Because um, God is his master, God is your master. And because God will stand, he, he will stand in judgment before God and so, and so will you. God is his judge and he is yours. The problem with just leaving it there, if we just moved on to the next subject, is that if we just stop there, we might be tempted to think that the way that we accomplish that is by just ignoring the other person, by just leaving them alone. Let them go off whatever they want to do, fine, whatever I want to do, fine. I'll do my thing, you do yours, I'll mind my business, you mind yours. It might imply that if we just leave the weak person in that weak condition, that's all that's required for us to do. But that's not what Paul is telling us to do. He's not saying just leave them alone and ignore them. Now Paul deals with this very similar problem in the Corinthian church, and there he points out kind of the essence, the same um, principle that we're studying today, and that is that knowledge and love work together. In 1 Corinthians 8.1, now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that all um, possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up but love builds up. And then down in uh, Romans 13, 8, Paul says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another for he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. And then in verse 10, love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So he said, he's not telling us just do your own thing and ignore the other guy. Don't just leave it alone. Because there's a bigger principle here, and that is we are to love, not just know what's true, not just to know where we stand. So the whole purpose of the Christian community is not leave each other alone, it's build each other up. Work to promote the unity of the church. It's accept each other where they are, encourage them, to grow and mature, because we all need to grow. We are not all fully developed. We're always growing. When you consider this, think about uh, John chapter 13. Jesus is with his disciples for the last time. They're in the upper room. 
They're in a second story room in, in Jerusalem. They've come from being out in the, the dirt, walking around in sandals. And they get to this Last Supper, and there's, it's generally accepted that there, there will be a servant, a house servant, to go around and wash your feet. It's just a courtesy, it's a custom. But there isn't a house servant, there's just these guys together. And I'm sure that they're aware, nobody's washing my feet. Nobody's offered that. You ever see that sign that says, employees must wash their hands? And I waited 45 minutes and no employee came to wash my hands. <laughs> any rate, that's kind of what's going on here is they're around the table and nobody's doing it. And they're all looking, you know, whose job is this? Who is the least among us that needs to be doing it? You remember what happened? Jesus gets up from the table. He takes off his outer garments and he wraps a towel around himself. And he goes around and he washes every one of their feet. You know what? I'm sure every one of them would have gladly washed Jesus' feet. But in this case, no one did. And Jesus washes their feet. And so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table, he said to them, Do you know what I've done? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then... The Lord and teacher washed your feet. You also ought to have washed one another's feet. For I give you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Some Christians believe that this is the third sacrament. A sacrament is something that Jesus implements and then tells us to do too. And clearly, he does, doesn't he? Jesus implements this action and he tells us to go and do it too. And again... And I think any of the disciples would have been glad to wash Jesus' feet. They, they loved him, and certainly they, they would want to make a good impression, and they'd want to express their, their love for Jesus, but they probably would still not relish the idea of washing somebody else's feet, because that would make them the lowest of the low. They're always arguing about which one of them is the most important, which one of them is going to have the best seat in the kingdom. And yet, what does Jesus say? This is an example that I've left for you. You wash one another's feet. The same chapter, John 13, a little bit later, Jesus has switched the subject from washing feet to loving one another. And he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Well, let me make this really clear. We're so preoccupied by how we're going to present the gospel using the four spiritual laws or Billy Graham's uh, steps to peace, I think it is. The most powerful testimony that we as Christians have of the gospel is not our presentation of the gospel. It's how we live this principle of love. The world will notice if we love one another. And they also notice when we bicker with one another, when we fight with one another, and we divide because we don't like the color of the carpets or the, or the drapes. They'll know that you're different. This life of us loving each other is a life of stunning eloquence. Probably more than your four spiritual laws. Romans 14, 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know 
and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So don't let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Again, Paul is dividing the group into two categories, the weak who are over-scrupulous. They have too many rules that restrain them. The strong are those who have uh, liberty in Christ. They can do as w- what, they, what their heart leads them to do. But he's saying the strong are in a position to damage the weak by the way that they exercise or govern their spiritual freedom. The apostle begins here with an interesting juxtaposition of words. He talks about stumbling blocks, and you can think of the Greek word here as lego. Not really. Stumbling block. You know, if you walk out in the middle of the night and you step on a Lego, you have stumbled over a stumbling block. But there's two ways that he uses this term. First, he talks about it being a stumbling block. That's something that's accidentally left out. You hope your grandkids left that Lego out accidentally for you to step on because that's far less evil than if they had done it on purpose. And that's the second word he uses, a hindrance. A hindrance is something that's deliberately left out to trip someone over. As Christians, we have to live our lives with a refusal that will do anything that harms, whether accidentally, a stumbling block, or purposely, a hindrance, anything that would harm someone else, a weaker brother. And this is a serious warning that he's giving to the strong believers. It's a warning that you are able to exercise your freedoms in Christ in such a way that it can have a disastrous effect on another Christian, either because you offend them callously or more seriously, you could possibly lead them to a behavior that their conscience does not allow them to do. And if you have led them to do something their conscience does not give them freedom to do, it, can, it is subjectively a sin for them. And they will have to deal with the guilt, with the sorrow, with the loss of joy, potentially even for the loss of the assurance of their own salvation. Just because you have the right to do something doesn't mean you have the privilege to do what you have the right to do. We don't want to impede another's progress or cause them to fall simply because we're insisting that that we have the right to do so. I note the possible ways that you insisting on your freedom can harm your brother. Verse 13, you can cause him to stumble. Uh, Verse 15, to be distressed, uh, to destroy them. So sure, you can do something and have a good conscience about it, but you ought to be asking not how does this action affect me, but how does me doing it in front of my brother going to affect him? How's it going to uh, 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 how's it going to affect his walk with the Lord? You, the, 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 the person who's adamantly refusing to submit because he's demanding that he has the freedom is actually showing that he is bound by the tyranny of the freedom that he has. He's a slave of his freedom. Mula sums it up 
he says, the Lord may counteract your action and save your injured brother from himself and you, but your action is nonetheless calculated for his perdition. And all the while, this soul for which in comparison to your dull and narrow liberty you care so little was so much cared for by the Lord that he died for him. His selfish insistence on your liberty can tear down, can destroy, and it invariably destroys what the Lord has worked so hard to build up. Again, the immediate issue here is about eating meat or observing special holy days, but the principle here is about all of the freedoms that we could enjoy as Christians, all the freedoms that we have to not observe the scruples that the weaker Christian insists on. Verse 17 says that the kingdom of God is not about enjoying your freedom. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy. We have freedom, but we choose to surrender, to sacrifice our freedom because we are making ourselves subservient to our weaker brother. Suppose there's a new Christian named Jason, and Jason believes it's wrong for any Christian to use any alcoholic beverage. Alcohol is evil, there's no exceptions to that. Now Jeff has been a Christian for a while, and Jeff realizes that the, the Bible does not prohibit the use of alcoholic beverages. But Jeff is gonna choose to not drink a beer with Jason because Jason is convinced in his mind that it's wrong to drink beer. And so he considers it, Jason considers it a sin. Now, likewise, like Jeff, we need to forecast what the consequences will be of our exercising our freedoms if they can damage someone else, if they can damage a brother. Verse uh, 13, there's another irony that escapes us in the English because Paul says, don't judge your brother, but judge yourself. And our verse says, don't judge, but decide for yourself. But it's a play on words that, that Paul is using here. Don't, let's not pass judgment on other people, but let's do judge ourselves, not putting a stumbling block in the way. And Paul continues, I know, I, I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So Paul, agreeing with Jesus, is saying that, that uh, all foods are now, we are now free to enjoy all foods. He says that in Mark uh, chapter 7, and I don't know what verse, but he's, Jesus is alluding to this dietary freedom that we have now. Similarly, you are free as a Christian to drink wine or beer if you can do so with a good conscience. And if you can use that litmus test we talked about last week, if you can do so and give thanks to God. And your brother also has that freedom if he can take whatever action it is and do so and give thanks to God. But if Jason thinks that it's sinful for him to drink beer, he must not drink beer because a matter of conscience is a very important thing. And if you do something which violates your conscience, you are sinning subjectively in your heart, even if you are not sinning objectively against what the Word of God tells you to do. We may cause our friend to sin, even though it's not a sin for us. 
And Paul concludes in verse 18 that whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. The overall principle is whether you think you have this freedom or whether the weaker Christian with the scruples feels like you don't have this, Christ, this freedom, you can cause his faith to shrivel by him watching you, especially if he admires you or he thinks that you're a mature Christian and he sees you doing something, drinking beer or wine, which he's convinced is wrong for him, but he says, well, if this guy can do it and he's a mature Christian, then I guess it's okay and I'm going to do it even though I feel guilty about it. You've caused him to sin. The kingdom of God is not operating in your life if you're demanding your rights, if they're more important to you than, than the, the damage that you're going to do to your brother or the separation from your brother who does not agree to you with you. If you have this need to prove your liberty you are a slave to the tyranny of your liberty. Verse 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, you substitute anything else in there, holy days, drinking beer, drinking wine, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another to stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because he's eating not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. It's really tragic when a weaker brother is led to do something his conscience does not allow him to do, which he considers him sinful because the stronger brother is flaunting his liberties. Frank Gabeline wrote, having spoken of the edification, literally the building up, that's what the word edification means here, of the saints, Paul reinforces his point by warning of the reverse process to destroy the work of God is to tear it down so that much time and painful labor will be required to restore the edifice to the point where it can function again as the instrument of divine purpose. It's disheartening to realize that such colossal loss could be occasioned by the difference of opinion over food. The better, literally the more noble or praiseworthy course, is to do without meat under the circumstances and to refrain from drinking wine if partaking would be the stumbling block to anyone. Paul extends the principle to include anything that might have this effect. Again, as a Christian, you are free to do anything that your conscience permits you to do. Again, the litmus test is whether you can do so, whatever that action is, and give praise, give thanks to God. Verse 6. But the point is that even though we are free to do that, we lay down our freedoms for the sake of Christ and for the sake of our love for each other. And if there's questionable areas about our Christian liberty and you feel free to enjoy them and your conscience is clear before God, then enjoy them. But use discretion. Don't enjoy those freedoms in front of people who are going to be offended by it. Keep it to yourself. Enjoy those freedoms with other Christians 
privately and with, with other Christians that also free, feel free to enjoy them, and then shut up about it. Don't go flauntering your freedom around somebody else. That's not sneaky or two-faced. That's just wise advice. If you feel it's free to have a glass of wine with other Christians who feel the same way, by all means do so. You are totally free to do that. But not in the presence of someone who does not have that freedom. The strong is blessed or happy in his private enjoyment of the freedom because he's free from doubt. He, he, he's, he's free because he's not creating a scandal. No one else is looking on that's going to be hurt by it. And the scrupulous can gladly refrain from those things because he doesn't feel free to do so. The point is that the strong person gives up those freedoms gladly because he does not consider it a sacrifice. He considers it a joy because he's doing so for the love of the brother and he's doing so for the love of the Lord. Back in 1813, Frederick, was it Frederick III of Prussia was at war with Napoleon, 1813, and he was running out of money to keep the war going and to rebuild the country. His treasuries were, were depleted and the thought of just giving up and surrendering was unthinkable. And he came up with an idea. He didn't want to disappoint his people. He didn't want to surrender to the enemy. So he decided to ask the women of Prussia if they would turn in their gold and silver jewelry and it would be melted down and used to finance the reconstruction of the country and, and the war effort. And uh, in exchange, for the gold and silver jewelry, they were to be given a medal that was made out of cast iron. Each decoration on each of these cast iron medals was inscribed, I gave gold for iron, 1813. And the response was overwhelming. The women brought in all kinds of jewelry to be melted down, and they began to value the, 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 the cast iron medal more highly than the jewelry, so much so that it became rather unfashionable for women to wear jewelry, but they rather wore this, this uh, cast iron metal as proof that they were willing to sacrifice for the king. And this became known as the Order of the Iron Cross. Of course, the Nazis picked up on that and used it for something else. But in 1813, it meant you were willing to sacrifice your valuables for the king. Christians, too, when we come before the king, there's nothing that we wouldn't gladly sacrifice for our king. And when we give up whatever it is, we gladly give up to Christ because we love him. We, we don't feel a loss for it. We don't feel like we've, we're deprived of anything. We're glad to give this sacrifice voluntarily because by definition, a sacrifice is something you give up that has value to you, but you give up for something that's better. And so we sacrifice to God our, our freedoms so that others can grow into Christian maturity and so that the church can grow in love and unity. There's a very famous saying that uh, quoted of Martin Luther in his On Freedom of a Christian Man. He wrote, a Christian man is a most free Lord of all, a subject of none. Like I said, that's a tired quotation many people have used. The very next sentence is, a Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all, subject of all. 
So we're affirming two sides of the same coin, that we, we're totally free to enjoy absolutely anything that our conscience allows us or, or our conscience condones. But I must choose what freedoms to exercise in the, in the presence of other people. I must voluntarily give up my freedoms for the sake of those who were offended by them, because I'm, I am a slave to all. I am, I am a slave of none, I'm a servant to all. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying these things, these less important, these non-essential things that we so typically divide and, and distress each other about really aren't that important. If you have an opinion, if you have a freedom, if you have this uh, exercise, then good for you, keep it to yourself. But you will be blessed if in the exercise of your freedoms you're not harming someone else. You will be blessed in the exercise of your freedom if you are free from doubt. You will be blessed in the exercise of your freedom if it doesn't cause scandal by those who are being led to sin through the exercise of your freedom. You are blessed because you feel in the exercise of your freedom God's good pleasure. Go ahead, enjoy these things. I've given them to you for your enjoyment. Last week I told you about Charles Spurgeon who smoked a lot of cigars and somebody was chastising him because he smoked too much. And they said, well, how, when do you think, at what point is smoking too much? And he said, maybe smoking two cigars at the same time. Here's the rest of the story. Charles Spurgeon, at the height of his fame, was walking through the street of London, and he saw a sign, and the sign read, we sell the cigar that Charles Spurgeon smokes. And at that moment, Charles Spurgeon gave up the habit. He quit smoking cigars. He came to see that what was for him a freedom was possibly the cause of someone else to stumble and to sin. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Now, I am totally free to not wear a stupid bike helmet when I'm by myself. I, I accept the risk and I prefer the liberty. I don't want to be told I have, by the way, there's no law in Washington state that says I have to wear a helmet yet. But in the meantime, <laughs> I choose to not wear a helmet because I don't want to. But when I'm with my grandkids, I am not free to make that decision. I am free to not wear a helmet, but in their presence I am not free to do so because they are subject to rules which are imposed upon them, rules which are placed upon them, rules which limit their freedom. And I don't want them to, by me not wearing a helmet, I don't want them to start resenting the rules or be tempted that they can ignore the rules just because I do. And therefore, I gladly give up my rights. I wear the stupid helmet for their benefit. Okay, I realize it's an imperfect illustration, but you get the point. Their interests are more important than my freedom. For me, it's no sacrifice. It's a joy. Let's pray. I pray, Father, that we do all that we can to promote and to protect the unity which we did not create. Your Holy Spirit has done that. But we don't want to be the cause for hurting a brother. We don't want to be a cause for dividing the church. We don't want to be a cause for offending someone in the exercise of our freedoms. 
I pray that we learn to enjoy our freedoms richly, but to love our brothers even more. To the end that Christ is glorified in this church and to the end that the world outside looking on will behold this church, these brothers and sisters, and say, my, look how they love one another. And that is our strongest testimony of lives that have been changed by grace. To this end, Father, change us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.